Welcome to the Awakening Podcast. You can find all our episodes on awakeningpodcast.org. We're also on BitChute as Awakening Podcast. I forward a podcast, the Learn Polish Podcast, Speaking Podcast, Meditation Podcast, Crypto Podcast, and all can be found on RoyCollin.com. Today, my guest is from Washington in America. Please welcome David Edwards. Hello. Um, I guess for me, it's good morning. I'm not sure for you. It's 4 p.m. at the moment for me here, but it's all good. <laughs> so I'm the beginning of my day and the end. Is it still Tuesday there? It's still Tuesday, yeah. yeah. Okay. I had a podcast with a woman in uh, Australia a few weeks ago. And it was like the next day down there. And so, and I said, your weather's going to be lovely tomorrow. <laughs> no, I, lo I love that about the body. You know, we can talk to people all over the world. And it's, uh, you know, that's the, the beauty of uh, the technology these days. Exactly. So you might let the listeners know who's David. Hi, well, David Edwards. I, didn't even, I hate these kinds of things because you have to talk about yourself, which isn't particularly comfortable for me. Um, but I've worked, I mean, I had a pretty normal upbringing. My dad was in construction and, you know, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. And we went through a lot of the normal, I guess, typical things a lot of people go through in life. But I've worked in healthcare for 35 years in the United States. And then for a while in Africa, in Nigeria, actually. But And as I was, I was a CEO of what's called a community health center in the United States. So in the U.S., as most people, I don't know, I don't know what people know about the United States. You know, it depends on where your listeners are living, living and well, listening. To be honest, I've had, in all of my podcasts, I've at least fifty percent is from the United States of the okay. listenership. Yeah. So for the half who maybe aren't, right in the U.S., healthcare is mostly, and I I hate to say that even, but it's mostly private. Right. So a doctor practices medicine and it is a private practice. And inevitably, they're all, if you will, want to call it for profit. If we think of like there's for profit businesses and not for profit businesses. And I've worked almost always on the nonprofit side. And, and I'm not saying it's good or bad, it's just different. And, you know, the expectations are slightly different. And at community health centers, they're kind of this hybrid thing. And so they're sponsored, if you will, by the federal government, but they're not owned by the federal government. So it's you're, you're technically a private, not-for-profit organization. You have your own board. And I was like the CEO of this organization, um, like you think of a CEO of any other organization. But I reported to a board. And then we had accountability to the federal government to meet certain standards. And there was a lot of transparency, which I personally really like, because in most business, right, there's not a lot of transparency. And since that's one of my core values, I mean, that it was always, it was a better fit for me. And so I was, I was working here. They had some struggles. I've done a lot of, if you might call it turnaround work and and so they had some financial struggles, they had struggles with quality, they had some struggles with people and hiring and all kinds of challenges. Pardon me. And so I um, helped kind of with a group of people, obviously, because you're only one person. 
I helped kind of turn that around and got on a strong footing. And then we started to grow and, you know, improve our reputation. And one of the things that I was most proud of working there was that it was the first health center, the first healthcare organization I could think of that I'm aware of in the country, who after about four years of work and focus on it, we eliminated any disparities in healthcare outcomes between our majority and our minority populations. Does that make sense when I say that? And I, 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 I might got to start talking about healthcare because I've lived with it for so long and I've seen so much of it evolve. It's just, you know, these things are natural to me, but I must. No, I, I, co- I cover it a lot in the, in, in the, in the show. So, you know, they, and normally about the, the fraud that's going on in the, in the healthcare industry. And there is fraud, right? I mean, there is. Um, and I wouldn't mind talking about that a little bit. <laughs> but not on a specific level, at more of a systems level, I guess, right? But anyways, we were very focused on our mission, you know, the purpose, the why we existed. And there was no fraud. <laughs> I'll just say, at our little little corner in kind of rural Oregon, there, there was no fraud in our organization. I, I can be pretty confident of that. Not that we are perfect people, but uh, anyway, so I was working there and we had done some really important things, I think, to reduce inequity in healthcare outcomes. uh, We had the highest quality in our region. So because we measured that, that was not the way it had been historically. We did some really good things and we had the opportunity because we had a little more money now to build a new building. And I was studying what would it take to make this building match the care model that we developed that was producing good quality, good engagement with patients, good outcomes, less, you know, greater equity. And I knew that, well, this was my first wow. My first wow was unless we can help the individual to become the captain of the care team. So Roy, if you are a patient coming to that health center, we expect you to be in charge. And the historical model, right, is that you go to the doctor and the doctor talks with you for four minutes and he pokes and prods you a little bit and they get some tests. And then he says, this is what you need to do. And he pats you on the head, metaphorically speaking, and says, go do what I told you to do and you'll be a good patient. That's the typical historical model, doctor, patient. And it's, you know, a little more profound than that. But that's, um, I mean, that's typical in, uh, in Ireland as well. I mean, that's the way it was. And so we wanted to move away from that because if you go to the doctor once a year, or let's say you go to the doctor every quarter, right? Once every three months, you get a, if you're diabetic or some reason you need to go in more often. Well, you know, you've got to, you're only with the doctor for a few minutes, mostly, but let's say you're in there for 20 minutes with your healthcare provider and maybe members of the team, you got the rest of your life, (laughs) you've got to take care of yourself. And so if you're not capable of being the captain, and if we don't honor you as the person who knows your body and your life and your experience and your environment, better than anybody on our care team, 
who at the most, right, if you're in, for example, active therapy, you might be coming once every week or every other week, but still you've got the vast majority of your life is on your own. And so I thought if we can't help the individual patient be the captain, not only of their care team, but the captain of their, their life outside of this care environment where we have lots of supports, you know, and things to help and et cetera, et cetera, then, you know, we will fail to dramatically improve our effectiveness, which is what we wanted to do, right? We wanted to be more effective and um, we want to have even better outcomes. I mean, really off the charts, outstanding outcomes. And so that was my first kind of wow. As, and I started as I was working 50, 60 hours a week in my spare time, I was studying and I was reading and thinking, well, what does that mean even? What is it, you know, what does it take for you to be in charge of your own life? And kind of, you know, as a corollary, it means that unless you specifically and consciously make a choice to say, I am, for example, working for this company, and I cede certain aspects of my free will, if you will, of your agency to do certain things or to do it their way, right? But you do that by choice and, and that's really fine, right? Because you're still the captain, you've made this conscious choice to do this. Then what happens far too often though is we don't think about anything. <laughs> we just go through life and we go with the flow, right? And where the tide takes us is where we end up. And so, this was my second kind of wow, was that at the center of all change models, I was studying change models, right? Because this is all about change. You've got your internal change and you've got your external change. And, I, and for either one of those, what we really need is personal or in what the psychologists call intrinsic motivation. And that is at the core of all of these change models. And they use slightly different words for it, but it's the same idea. If you don't have a sense of your own motivation, which as I dove into it and studied even further, you know, you cannot be the captain of your life. It's just, it's impossible, which means you're going to be a minion. And minions are cute in the movies, but they're not really great for you in real life. And so I was fired from that job that I really loved and I worked really hard at, <laughs> had a disagreement with my board and I, I lost that argument, but I did learn from it. So I guess it was all good. And also I had some time on my hands because, you know, when I was doing this on the weekends, basically, and, you know, you had to vacuum and do the garden and spend time with your wife and do all the normal things in life. I, did, I wasn't able to make as much progress as I'd like. And so I really devoted a couple of years to studying and writing about this. And finally, after failing at a couple of businesses during the pandemic, I realized I got enough stuff and I wrote a book. And the book is called New You, Who Knew? And it's really the things I discovered, I didn't invent any of these things, but I discovered these 10 principles. They fall in three camps or three broad areas. Our values, what's called self-efficacy, which nobody knows what that is, and then self-compassion. But those three foundations, I found 10 principles. And if people can engage with those 10 principles in very simple ways, they will, in very fact, be 
the captain of their life. And and I guess some context is, and I don't know if you have any thoughts or does that make no, sense? No, no, I quite, yeah, it does. And I'm just wondering when you were in the, the first job, you know, like, you know, that you wanted people to be the captain of their own health ship, let's call it. We like, because you're, you're, you're dealing with um, not the, like the people that are earning a lot less that they've got some issues at home. So how are we able to actually get that message across to people that they'd start because even now, I can even see some people, they go to, like, it, all age groups from, you know, 18 to 70, even higher. Some people, they just they just hand over their, their system to the hospitals. And, I mean, it's something I've never done. I always kind of, you know, get second opinions, investigate what's this, look at side effects on, on tablets and everything. But how were you able to get, let's call it, not as educated people to get that message that they would be, you know, the captains of their own ship. So there's a couple of different ways. And I would say that in this setting, we were imperfect, right? We, we were just starting to have this conversation and, you know, I hadn't evolved my own thinking that far while I was still there, but there was a few things that we did do because as an organization, because of the people we'd hired and, you know, the board that we had over years wanted to make a difference in people's lives, you know, a more profound difference. That really was a part of our intent, which is the fourth principle, by the way. <laughs> and so based upon our shared values, which is the first principle, and again, they didn't have my book. I just wrote it and just published it a couple months ago. And this was back in 2018. But uh what we had done is we'd said, we had recognized that, especially we served a lot of lower income people and a lot of people with a lower education. So for example, we had a course that we taught and it was like, I think it was 10 weeks and it was free. I think it was free or it cost $5. You know, it was a nominal participation kind of a thing. And the idea was if you've got a little skin, right, you put, it's not free, right? So I had to do something to engage with this, right? That's a positive thing. And that kind of gets some wheels spinning in our minds. But the course was based on what's called popular education. Have you ever heard of popular education? No. So the, and I won't go into a lot of detail. I don't know that I could go into a lot of detail, but um, the basic idea of popular education is that we, each of us, no matter what our cultural background is, what our race is, what our education level is, what our income level is, there is an, a certain amount of native smarts. You can call it street smarts, or you can call it, you know, native intelligence or whatever you want to call it. So we assumed that that was the case. We basically just said, this we think is a fact that's a part of life. And so people have a certain level of smarts that they bring to the table. Certainly they know themselves and their history, right? Better than we ever will. And what's interesting, if people are lower income, you still have to get up in the morning. You have to show up at a job that pays you perhaps not enough to actually live on. You still have to smile at customers. <laughs> you still have to, you know, get off work and take the bus or walk or drive or, you know, however you get around, you still got to do laundry, shop, buy groceries, prepare meals, do all the things in life, right? 
maybe even, even though most of us don't, you know, save a little bit for retirement, work on who we are a little bit, have a relationship, right? They have to go and do all the normal activities of life, but with less resources. And so what happens if you have more resources, let's say you are, you know, over the 50th percentile, somewhere is up in there. If you need somebody, you, you know, you feel a little overwhelmed, well, then you can hire a psychiatrist and because you have insurance or you have cash. There's a lot of people that want to help you because <laughs> you can pay them, at least in America. <laughs> and part of the idea of health centers was that that's not okay and to provide services to people that may make it more accessible if you didn't have resources. So we were trying to solve that piece of that pie. But still in most areas of life, you depend on a market-based economy and you know the haves get more than the have-nots. They have access to more things. If you wanna save for retirement and you actually have a lot of money to put towards retirement, there's a lot of people that would love to help you. And, and you could go on down the line if you're getting, having a hard time because you're working a lot and hard to get meals, you know, in America, you can pay somebody to send you a box of food every day with all the pieces and the right portions. And you just throw it together and, you know, put it in the oven or fry it on a pan and, and you got dinner or you can get it prepared. Yeah. You buy it frozen, you throw it in the microwave and dinner's ready. And there's lots of ways with resources, you make yourself, you make your life easier. And you can cope with all those demands in life. But when you don't have the resources, you know, you've got to be smarter. You've got to do it, most of it, yourself. And so life is frankly just inherently much more challenging. And a lot of people with more resources, they kind of look down on people with less because why don't they just be more responsible or why don't they this or that or the other thing? And, and it drives me crazy, frankly because they have no recognition, they have no self-awareness that they are blessed for whatever reasons to be in a different situation. And so they don't have much empathy, even if they started off, you know, in that same boat. Anyways, so I don't wanna get whiny about stuff, but uh, anyway, so you've got more challenges and you gotta get the same things done or as much as you can on your own. So it demands more. And so in my theory, if you have fewer resources, it is more important than ever for you to build your life on enduring foundations. You, you just don't have the luxury of buying off your mistakes, right? If you're a rock star, and you get addicted to drugs, I mean, you got lots of money. So you pay somebody to manage your business and you go to rehab for three weeks and you know nobody's gonna miss you because you got the funds to pay for that stuff and to you know, have other people maintain you know, that semblance of normality and pay the bills and do all the things that need to happen. It's not ideal, but you just have that much more cushion if you're making minimum wage and you get abducted to drugs, you know, you're likely going to be homeless pretty soon and you're going to be in big, big trouble and you won't be in rehab, you'll be in jail. Because that's what we do with you when you're lower income. Um, it's not a conspiracy, it's just it's just it's how we've set things a, up. It's a fact, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's well known. Yeah. yeah. So 
anyways, I got a little distracted there, but so anyway, so what we did was we used ideas like this, what do I even call it, common education. So we set up a course, and so it was really built on you bringing some of yourself to participate and, and drawing out that wisdom that you have, that we assume that you have. And, you know, there's been a ton of research that shows if you go into like an elementary school and you split the class into two groups, one half has brown or green or some other color of eyes and the other half has blue eyes and you tell the brown and green eyed kids that you know there's studies that say that you guys are smarter you just have gifts that those blue eyed kids don't have and so i expect more of you because you you're bringing more to the table and so you know over the next few weeks they start testing those kids and they do better and the blue-eyed kids who you've told, you know, I'm really sorry, it's just nature has chosen you to have blue eyes, and so you're not quite as smart as those other kids, and so they don't do as well, right? And then, of course, the teacher admits halfway through the experiment, not that the kids know it's an experiment, but they, the teacher says, oh, man, I got it wrong. I am so sorry. It's the blue-eyed kids that are the smarter ones. Oh, you poor guys, this was the fluke. You did better for a couple of weeks, but it's just a fluke because you're really not nearly as smart as those blue-eyed kids. And she starts treating the kids differently. And all of a sudden, the blue-eyed kids are having better test scores and they're doing better in school and they behave better and you know all those kinds of things. And they've done these kinds of studies for many, many years and they always have the same result, right? So, and you go back into the 60s even and what was the guy's name? McGregor, I think. I remember back from my my business master's degree. And, uh, and so he said, we had theory X and theory Y of how employers or bosses treat their employees, right? And so how we go into this, what our expectations are make a huge difference. And so we had this expectation that people were gonna participate. And whether it was in this course that we set up to help people manage their diabetes, for example, or whether it was when you came in, rather than just telling you what to do, we would took a little longer. So it took about 50% more time with an individual patient because we wanted to truly have a dialogue with you. And you gotta give time for that because you can't have dialogue in three and a half minutes. I mean, not much of a dialogue anyway, right? The unfortunate thing, that's the way it is with most of the doctors. You go in and they're writing the prescription because they're getting their kickbacks and they're, you're out the door before you said hello. That's exactly right. Well, and it's the system that has been set up, right? And what we were trying to do is buck the system. We were trying to say that's not okay because as somebody smarter than me once said, the results that you're getting are perfectly designed according to the inputs that you're putting into it, to what your expectations are, right? And so if you wanna change your outcomes, you've gotta change your inputs and your expectations, your processes, if you will. And so we were trying to change up our processes in a way, now we didn't make a lot of money, right? We did okay, but we weren't there to make money, right? We were there to improve health and to make people better citizens, more capable and so that's what we focused on 
Um, we spent more time. We had our providers that we hired had a different expectation. And it was pretty fun because we would hire somebody who'd been in a private practice for years. And frankly, they made a lot more money. But they got so fatigued with seeing 35 or 40 patients in a day. You just do the math on that. How much time do you get if you still have to document and do follow up and you know all the things that a, a medical provider has to do? If you only, if you're going to see that many people in a day, you only get a few minutes with each person, a very few minutes. And so the system is designed to produce an outcome where patients don't engage, patients don't follow through, patients don't feel like they're in charge, right? So they're feeling like they're, they're like a machine, right? It's this mechanical metaphor. And they're in this machine and if their cogs don't all line up, you know, then it's their fault. They're a problem in the machine. They're causing a problem. And that, of course, creates all kinds of mental mechanisms that work against them, right? Because they're not the captain of their life. They're a victim of the machine. Does that make any yeah, sense? No, no, totally. And I mean, even if you look back at, say, like the education system based on your, your blue-eyed, brown-eyed uh, analogy, it's that's how it's done in most schools where they basically they they determine based on whatever subject oh these guys are in the lower class these are in the upper and yeah all these guys do fantastic and the rest they're just they're just joking around and laughing because they've been already put into that position instead of mixing them where they're helping each other it's like they've already said okay you belong in that sector and they've been, exactly you know it's a shame but that still goes on that kind of thing it does and why we don't learn because you know the knowledge is there but it's, it's just like in healthcare i would wonder sometimes uh, i'll short of another w word wine it's hopefully short of whining no yeah with an h w h wine <laughs> um not w i n e but <laughs> i would wonder sometimes why when you have enough evidence that something is effective it takes literally about a decade for it to work through, you know, a normal, you know, business school we, school, we learned about the normal bell curve. And you've got like your early adopters, then you're kind of post early, I'm not sure I've got all the words right, but post early adopters. Then you got the middle, you know, your two normal standard deviations in the middle, which is like 66% of all people. Once those early people, the very early and then the late early kind of get on board, then we all go, oh, that's, you know, the good thing to do. It becomes popular or sexy or whatever. And so then the most of the rest of us fall in line. And then there's the laggards, <laughs> you know, and the la that last standard deviation where, you know, I'm never going to learn to use the computer, or the internet, or whatever it is, you know, and that's fine, right? But, uh, but anyways, I always wondered why it took so long, but it did, and it just takes a long time, even though we know. And so I have hope that some of these things eventually will, in fact, become more common. But uh, anyways, and, and a part of this, you know, what we were trying to do in this model of care was overcome what I call the mechanical metaphor. Does that, I don't know if you've had people talk about this, an industrial or a mechanical metaphor. Has anybody talked about that on the podcast? So I, I was listening to something yesterday. I was 
going to getting some stuff from my father-in-law. So I hope he doesn't get out of the house as much and he's just getting to that level of his age <laughs> where, you know, his functionality is much less. And so uh, he's just still a, a dear sweet man, but I was doing some shopping for him and listening to the radio, something like this. And uh, I, uh, they were talking about slavery in the United States. And obviously most of the world has had slavery. I was amazed when I was in Africa, I learned that long before the Europeans over showed up, the group of Africans that I was working with, you know, historically going back several centuries, would have raiding parties and steal from other African tribes and get slaves <laughs> and vice versa. So slavery is not a new thing in the world. And I don't think it's universal. I don't, I think it's universal. Every culture that I'm aware of, they've had some kind of slavery, you know, in their history. It's just yeah, sure. the, the English were actually selling off the Irish as slaves. So the actual whites were, I mean, it's very hard to know the truth of what way history is, but apparently whites were, the Irish whites were the first slaves before the blacks were the slaves. And there you go, in their history, right. So there's something in our nature, you know, we want to control other people. And for, for our own economic benefit, if you will, in our own ego, we want to say, this class of person is less than my class of person. <laughs> and there's just something in human nature that, in my opinion, we need to recognize and, of course, then be conscious about saying that's not okay. Right. <laughs> but anyway, and so they were talking about slavery in the United States in particular. Uh, and it was interesting because they were talking about this time period in, say, the 1700s. In Europe, you know, it was the early days of the what we call the Industrial Revolution. But it wasn't a revolution like, you know, the Revolutionary War or, you know, those kinds of things, whichever Revolutionary War, you know, you were addressing. But it was more of that there were some advantages that came about by adoption and creation of this technology. And it created efficiency, right? And if you were a farmer and you could get a cotton gin going, you know, you were much more effective. You could produce cotton and sell it for less and still make more money, right? So there's all these advantages of an industrial revolution. We had trains. I could all of a sudden get from here to there, you know, in a third or a quarter or whatever of the time, and it created these efficiencies. And we kind of hung for that, right? And the people who are looking for those kinds of outputs, those kinds of outcomes in a market-based economy, you know, we're pursuing this technology. And it wasn't like there was a committee driving it. It just, you know, it kind of happened. And so go on now 300 or so years later, <laughs> you know, we don't even think about this anymore. But this industrial metaphor has unfortunately been applied to people. Instead of slaves, you know, we have employees and we expect, and there's, you know, some pushback against this, which is really healthy, but, you know, an employer expects you as an employee come in and do what they tell you to do. And the model has historically been, and people have been very proud to say, employees are our greatest asset. Have you ever heard that in Europe or yeah. that kind of a sentiment? Yeah. yeah. Right. And so this you know, this, in, this industrial mindset has just become a part of 
most of Western society and some of Eastern society now even. And we look at people as assets instead of as human beings. So when I went to business school, I learned about assets and I was a chief financial officer for a lot of years, for a couple of decades, in fact, and I knew I had assets, right? When you've got an asset as an employer, as a company, I know that I can do with it what I need to do to accomplish my business purposes. And that makes sense, right? If I have a machine, I should expect I can tweak that machine and make it more productive. And that's what I need to do. And I need to bolt something onto it that I can make it even better, then that's better yet. If I can, uh, if it outlives its useful life, right? It's a machine. I've already paid for it. It's paid for. And that's what they call a sunk cost. And so then I can trade it off to somebody else or I can simply dispose of it. And so Jack Welch, who was the CEO of General Electric, what was that, the 80s probably, 90s? He became very famous because he had adopted a new human resources policy, looking at his employees through this industrial kind of mechanical metaphor. He said, these are assets, they're important assets. They can unionize and do all kinds of things that I don't like, but you know, they're still assets. That's how I think of them, even if I don't consciously recognize it. And so he developed this famous human resources policy that said, if you're in the bottom 5% of my human assets, I am going to basically fire you all. And you're out of here. I'm disposing of this asset. And, and if you're in the, you know, 94th percentile, you're on notice because next year, you know, since these guys are gone, you by default are going to be in the bottom 5% unless you step up and make some stuff happen, right? So, so Jack became famous for this amazing human resources policy. But of course, you know, 5%, they had like 300,000 employees. So I don't know if I can do that math in my head, but if you lay off 5%, of 300,000 employees, they're laying off what, 15,000 employees yeah. every year? Yeah. Not that they screwed up or they cheated or they lied to you or anything like that, just they were lower performing. And the next year that they do the same thing. And the other side, you know, looking at this from this industrial metaphor that we do is that we say, if you're not at those levels in the company, probably where they're laying those people off, firing them. But at the higher levels of the company, let's say you're at a director level and above, for example, vice presidents, you know, they had serious bonuses, right? I mean, if you accomplish this business objective, you could get a bonus that would be huge potentially. And of course, CEOs, especially of American corporations are, I don't know, they're famous in the United States, at least because their salaries are so outrageous. I mean, they're completely out of touch with reality, but you know, you got a $10 million bonus and you can call it a stock option or you can call it whatever you want, but it's still $10 million on top of whatever your multi-million dollar salary is. And you know, you're paying people on the front lines $15 an hour or $12 an hour, you know, or whatever it is. Those wages have been going up the last couple of years, which I think is really good, but uh Anyways, and so we have positives that come out of this industrial 
mechanical metaphor, right? We have a lot of productivity. A great deal of wealth has been created. We have computers and Zoom and, you know, headphones and microphones and great, I can buy a, a monitor for $150 that, you know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago cost me $300. I mean, it's just... And that's sorry, that, I, I, no, that's great. And that's when three, three, you know, three hundred dollars was, you know, cost a lot more. You were people were earning a lot less, you know, t t ten years ago. Yeah, it, it's like the technology prices have dropped, unbelievable. Yeah. And so these are, you know, these are positive outcomes in my mind of the industrial metaphor. In America, Walmart, you know, tries to price everything really cheap. And if you make jeans, they talk to you and say, do you want to sell jeans here? Then you got to make them cheaper, put less thread in, use cheaper thread, use thinner fabric, whatever you got to do, you know, make them in China and ship them over on a boat. I mean, whatever you got to do, make them cheaper because, you know, and then we'll sell them at Walmart. And so it's, you know, this, this, this mono, mono focus or this singular focus on making more money and, and profitability and efficiency and productivity and it has all these kind of advantages well, I, I i like i beg to differ on some of that because the consumerism like it's just on the walmart i mean the the owners i mean it was sam walton was the creator but you know even his sins are billionaires like i've heard there's a load of the employees on food stamps which is sad i mean how can you have that kind of thing like but regarding um the manufacturing like if you look at a load of the stuff like say cars and everything they're made to last less now than you know kind of the 70s or the 80s or an iron or something like that like i know from people that were manufacturing fans they were told it only has to last for a year in other words the warranty because they wanted to actually you know constantly sell the same with the light bulbs the, you know the manufacturers of phillips and the few others they all had an agreement together that the light bulbs wouldn't last over i don't know ten thousand hours or something like that because they'd sell more and unfortunately and with the cars once the car door opens so many times different things break we've gone from a stage that you can make things to last longer and it's all about you know by the way using you know all the people complaining about the environment and the climate at the end of the day if you st start making things to last you don't have to use so much products no matter what your beliefs i mean i've looked at all i've had people from greenpeace and everything on that so that's even a lie in itself but if you look at how things are actually manufactured they're manufactured to break your laptop like when laptops came out first or your computer they lasted 10 years or five years no everybody's computer starts crashing after three years because they want you to get the new one the same with the phones i mean the iphone could last for 10 years but they don't want you they've even slowed it down they got caught for doing that and you know so i get like uh, by reducing costs and everything is brilliant and doing things in a better way fantastic but unfortunately it's all about greed and money and all they want to do is sell which basically yeah. means people are working they might have the lovely house they might have the lovely car but they're in the office and they're actually not enjoying to be in the house right well that's the other thing is again people with resources and again, this is, it's just the way it is, right? If you're the one who's working at a level where you get the bonuses that make a real difference, then you can afford to buy a car that's still made to last a long time. So, you know, for example, 
I think they sell, I don't know, I have no idea. I'd love to go to Poland, but you know, and, and I loved what little, I lived in France for a couple of years when I was a younger man. So I, I think that, what the system is set up to do, as we said earlier, is to produce the kind of outcomes that we've got. And if you've got money, you can spend more money on stuff that's going to last longer, right? You can afford to buy a Mercedes, whereas, you know, the guy who's on the front line, the man or the woman, right, cannot. So they're going to have to buy that cheaper version of whatever it is, and it's going to break down. But they don't have the money, right, to invest in getting the stuff that's going to last. So again, it's a market economy. And that's kind of how that's set up to operate. And it's the downside. So we were talking about their pluses and there are minuses, right? You mentioned the environment. The environment has borne a terrible, terrible toll for, you know, because of the technological metaphor, if you will, because of this focus on producing more, cheaper, and businesses, by and large, don't have to pay the cost of the damage that they have done to the environment, right? We all have to bear the brunt of that over time. And, and it's the same, frankly, there's a cost been on families. Psychologically, when you have an incentive to produce at a certain level, and the motivation that that generates, which is contrary to your own intrinsic motivation and your own personal long run best interests. But you know, they put this big, big, sweet, wonderful carrot out in front of you. The motivation for somebody who's not the captain of their own life becomes overwhelming. And they pursue that business end with a singular focus. And you're, we pat you on the head again and say, you're a good employee. Now, you might be a good manager, director, vice president, or whatever, but the metaphor is the same. You have this singular focus based on this mechanical metaphor, which is built on building profitability for a few, right? For my company, if you're Phillips, you could care less if Siemens is profitable trying to use some European metaphors that still mean something in the United States, right? And so they don't. And the same with Siemens. They want to be profitable. They don't care if Philips does well or not. <clears throat> They're competitors in many you know, markets, many kind of product lines. And so they're trying to make money for themselves. And so the, the, what happens to the environment, right? Unless we hold them accountable for that, right? That's a, an aside. That's the side factor. And if they don't have to worry about it, why would they? Because that costs money. And it's a distraction from you know, what they're doing, which is selling more stuff. And so it's the way the system and this metaphor, this kind of mindset is set up. And so it produces the results that are inevitable because it's what it's set up to do. Short-sighted, selfish, singular focused on a you know single aim and so there are some antidotes to it. I, have you ever heard of a b corporation no so in the united states and i don't know if there's something similar in other parts of the world but in the united states and i believe that they do this internationally it's like a certification and so instead of in the united states there's letters <laughs> based on tax code 
So the type of corporation that you are, you're a limited liability company or a C corporation or, you know, whatever. But, you know, there's versions of companies or corporations based upon tax code. And so what these guys, some thoughtful people have said, they've kind of recognized this. You know, they said this model that we are a part of, we're not willing to get rid of it entirely, right? We don't want to go to communism where some central, you know, system controls all of the pieces. But so we want to enjoy the advantages of a market economy, but we want to overcome some of the disadvantages. And so they've created this thing called a B corporation, as opposed to like a C, which is a standard stockholder kind of company. And so what they've said is we hold ourselves voluntarily to a different standard. We don't see employees as assets. We see them as human beings. What a shocking concept. (laughs) And we don't have this kind of singular focus on profit. We do want to make a profit. We want to be profitable. But that's not the only reason we exist, right? And we recognize that we have impact that's broader than the walls of our company. And we recognize that and we want to have a positive influence on community, on the environment, on our employees. And so they've taken this, and so they've taken a a pretty serious level of accountability and transparency and self-reporting to say, we want to be profitable. We're still a for-profit company, but we recognize, and they've basically said we have some values. And what do values do? It doesn't matter if it's as a person or as a company, right? We say values put some boundaries, some limitations, if you will, on what we're going to do. But we do it purposefully, intentionally, and thoughtfully so that we accomplish our primary focus, but not with such a singular focus, with more a broader lens of the impact that we have on our community and the environment and our people so that we're more well-rounded, right? And hopefully... We have a better, more functional, productive, efficient, connected society as a result. We have a healthier environment and we're just more balanced. And I think that's a beautiful thing. It's a good thing to do. How long have they actually started to to do that? I don't know. I first became aware of them maybe four or five years ago. Of, of a B corporation. So I went to business school. We never talked about those at all. But I think they've been around for a little while. I mean, I don't multitask well. And I've seen some people there over here on this screen, they're looking it up and B Corporation. And, and I don't have the ability to do that and maintain a coherent train of thought with you, which is my primary focus right now <laughs> and with our listeners. But uh, and I think I, are you finding more. Yeah. Are you finding that there's more and more companies getting into that as opposed to the ones that are, uh, you know, just looking after them, their own uh, bottom line? My sense is that it is a trickle. I think Zappos would be an example of that, because from what I've read, I've read his book. He seems to be one of the guys. If, if you're talking, that seems to me like a guy that really cared about his people and the yeah. business grew because of that. There you go. Well, and it's a good example, right? You can, you don't have to be Walmart or GE or, you know, these big examples to be successful. You just don't have to. I mean, and at an extreme level, 
I'm aware of, of a couple. So again, I've worked with a lot of farm workers, for example. And there's these people I became aware of, they ran a big orchard. And when I say a big orchard, I mean, and I don't know what it is in hectares, but like 5,000 acres of apples. That's a lot of apples. I don't care where we are in the world. <laughs> they're, they're, they said to me, I went and visited with them. And they said, one out of every five apples grown in the United States grows on their orchards. So in a market the size of the United States, that's a lot of apples, right? Yeah. So they, they were a, a very large company and they had you know big apple processing plants, if you will, that employed thousands of employees at this company. And they were making, and you know, there's good years and bad years and normal cycles and all that, but they were making just bucket loads of money. <laughs> they were making a lot of money. And what they realized, and they were Christians, they had this kind of Christian background, and they had this their own epiphany. They said, you know, how much money do I need? <laughs> I mean, I could do anything I wanted, literally. I mean, uh, how much money do I need? Do I need to buy, you know, chalets in the Swiss Alps or something? Is that, you know, and they looked at their values. You know, they said, what am I all about as a human being, as a person? And they made those values very explicit in their lives. And they'd always lived, I think, by their values. But they just had this moment where they said, this is not, you know, just getting richer and richer and richer is not consistent with my own values. It's not what I'm all about. And it's not that they still don't make money. But what they decided to do was they said, I can make a great living still. And I've got enough money saved up. I mean, you know, we can do whatever we want for the rest of our lives. And so. I think what we need to do is because, you know, we're paying people $11 an hour to work in our apple processing plant and they can hardly feed themselves. That is not consistent with my values. And so they made decisions as the captain of their life and the captain of their own business to say, I'm still going to make money and I'm still going to leave stuff to my kids and all that kind of stuff. But I, for example, they built housing that was actually nice housing for people to live in. And they had to pay rent and all that stuff. But if you will, since they worked for them, they provided this housing that was a nice place to live. And it recognized that they are human beings and so they deserve to live in a decent place versus hovels that they had built for like migrant workers in the past. They decided, you know, well, there are people working for us. We're kind of out in the country. A lot of our stuff is out in the country. And it's not like Europe because, you know, out in the country means many, many, many miles and there's not much out there. <laughs> and in Europe, you know, we've, we've had civilization for long enough. There's cities all over the place. And they're, you know, anyways, it's just different. But uh, there's nothing in big stretches of the United States, literally absolutely nothing. And so they said, we're going to provide better schools so they don't have to bust their kids, you know, to the, you know, 40 miles away or something. And so, so they built a school built on the idea that all these kids can learn. And we avoid this creating classes and, and you help each other and all that kind of stuff. And then they said, you know, and they just said, you know what, we're going to take some of this money and we're not, it's not like a giveaway, but basically we're recognizing that we've created all this value 
And we want the people that are actually making that happen on the front lines to get more of that value. So they pay their people a little bit better. And then they said, you know, even at this point, because housing prices have gone up, it's hard for them to get into a house and like own their own home, which, you know, they get develop some equity, which makes them a better citizen and more engaged, you know, in maintaining civil society and all that kind of stuff. And so they said, we're going to offer low interest home loans to our employees so they can go out and buy a house wherever they want. And, you know, it's hard to get the capital, though, when you're not making a lot of money. So we're going to help them access that capital in a way that's affordable for them, but they still have to pay it back. So it's not like they're encouraging people to be irresponsible or anything like that. They're just helping them get established and develop that equity that then makes it so they can actually have a retirement and you're not having your rent go up every month once you're retired and your income is fixed. And so they just started being very thoughtful about, if you will, spreading some of the value that their business created and they're still fine. They're still taking care of, they're not like giving up anything that matters, but all of these thousands of people that work for them are better off in a lot of ways. And what, a, again, I mean, it's a choice. And, and I'm gonna loop back to my book if it's all right a little bit, because these principles are consistent. They work in government, they work in business, they work in our personal lives, they work in healthcare, they work in physical, your physical life and education. The principles are universal because I didn't create them. They've been around for thousands of years. Socrates and Plato talked about them. Uh, our founding fathers in America talked about them. Other thoughtful people talked about them. And we'll be talking about them hopefully a thousand years from now because it's just the way human beings work. And so the first principle that is like the, it's kind of the foundation of your foundation and working contrary, or how can I say, trying to rise above the mechanical metaphor to a more natural metaphor. I like to use the idea of a cherry tree just because I worked in cherry tree country and with farm workers and, and it was a beautiful metaphor for me, right? So in nature, everything starts small. You just think about it, like all the things that grow huge, like a sequoia or the redwood forest in California, for example, tallest, biggest trees in the world. They start as a tiny seed out of a pine cone, right? It's, it's just tiny. And yet it becomes this massive, amazing, powerful, enduring for whatever, a thousand years, right? Kind of a thing. And so everything starts small. And so your values is kind of the beginning. It's the germinating of the seed. And you start to put out some roots. And that's where we all have to start. And it's not some vague sense of, yeah, this is important to me, or I like that, or I don't like that. It's making your own personal core values. And I recommend that you limit them to five explicit. And the first chapter of the book talks about a process to go through and do that. And that's really the beginning. And on the foundation of your values, which we talked about earlier, is a limitation, right? If you're running a business, you have values because you're going to put limits on the way that you pursue your business purposes. In a personal life, you set values because you want to set some limits around pursuing what's important to you as an individual. 
And it's really important that we do that. And we're all better off for having done that. We think about like a freeway. So in Germany, right, they have the Autobahn. Well, there are big old barriers in between the lanes and the Autobahn. And they have lines in between, you know, the lanes going in the same direction. And there are, you know, lights getting on to and et cetera, et cetera. There's, you know, rules that we've all agreed to follow. And we've set up these barriers, which you could see as limitations. But we've done that because we know that we can go faster, further, and safer with more confidence if we set up some barriers and some boundaries, if you will. And so like in my own life, I said earlier, transparency is one of my core values because I got tired, frankly, of in business, people saying one thing to me and something different to somebody else. And you never know where you're at, right? You don't know where you sit. And I have no idea what's right and, you know, what, what people are all about, these hidden agendas. And, you know, and so I don't have any place for that in my life. And so I've adopted this value of transparency and it puts these barriers around what I'm willing to do. But I've done it consciously, intentionally. Intent is the fourth principle. So that I know that I can run my life better than I would have otherwise, right? And when I'm talking to you, Roy, and then tomorrow I'm talking to somebody else, I'm not telling you guys different stories. I never have to remember which one I told you. Because, you know, I'm an open book and, and I don't have to worry about that. And I like that. I like living that way. Mm-hmm. So that's a value or a boundary that I put on how I pursue my life. No, I totally agree. With the that second principle is with, similar with, is awareness. With, with that, like, because, you know, whether it's in a business or in a relationship, because there's always people telling stories that, as you said, they're telling one person one story. one, And I always say, it's like a coin. There's two sides to it. And I always, I always say to people, let's, let's go together. And we, we, we'll say this, the true story. And anybody that's not being ethical or honest will never turn up. They don't want that because they know that they're, they're not straight. If you're a straight shooter, you will face anybody and you will say the exact same thing. But when they're playing games, mind games, whatever psychological games, yeah, that, that's when they run. They, they cannot face that confrontation. Exactly. Well, exactly. And somebody who's super smart and super capable may be able to keep that up for a while. But for most people, they're just not capable of doing it because it takes a lot of energy. Can you imagine the memory you've got to tell if you have like three audiences? If I'm a business, for example, and I have the internal audience, but frankly, you never have one audience. You usually have an in the know audience you are pretty transparent with that small group. But then you've got the rest of the people you're telling a different story to because you don't want them to be, you know, really in the know. So even within your company, you might have different audiences and you're going to give them a different story, let alone like shareholders, which are getting a different story, and analysts, which might get a different story, and regulators, you know, let alone the tax man, they might get very different stories. Right. And so we're living this bifurcated life, which, you know, in psychology, you know, there's a term for that. And it's a mental illness. (laughs) And I like to think of companies as collections of individual human beings. 
right? And so if you think about that, everything that, and then this is, I think if we think about it, I think you would agree that this is true. And if you don't, I hope you say something because I'm always open to another perspective. But thus far, most people have agreed with me, virtually everybody has, is that companies suffer from the same kinds of mental problems that human beings do. And the reason for that is because companies are simply a collections of human beings. Everything that is technology related, everything that is facility related, everything that is asset related between my company and yours or any two companies is generic. If I invent a new widget, you know, a new app, then you could probably duplicate that within days, you know, if you've got the money and the people to do so, right? So that is never a competitive advantage in business. The only thing that is ever a competitive advantage in business is how we engage with and treat our people and the people that we attract to us as we accomplish our business purposes. That's, I mean, I worked at a heart institute for about 11 years. The day we opened the doors, we had, I think they were Phillips, in fact, the most advanced Phillips cath labs, these catheterization labs in the country and frankly, in the world. And people for about a year from all over the world would come out and visit us with Philip's help because they wanted, you know, to show how this worked in actual operations. And so they loved us and we loved them. And, and it was really cool. Now you'll laugh at this because we stored the images, you know, from the Catholic procedures on these huge big discs. I mean, they weighed several pounds a piece. And that was the ooh-la-la technology at the time in like 1990. And of course, within a few years, literally four years, maybe at the most, three, four years, they had, you know, a new version. And so did Siemens and so did Toshiba and so did, you know, all the other people, GE and all those other people that made similar technology, right? And so Philips was the best at the moment, somebody leapfrogged them, but then they leapfrogged, you know, and so technology is like that. And you're never going to be in charge for very long because it's just not the way that it is. But the people, and I had this realization even back then, I thought, so anybody else with a million dollars can buy a cath lab just like we did and get the exact same technology. Siemens didn't just sell it to us and say, yeah, we'll never sell another one to anybody else. That was never going to be our competitive advantage. And a lot of US hospitals were thinking, yeah, technology, that's our thing. We're the highest high tech hospital in our region, and that's going to be our competitive advantage. And I realized that's a fool's errand because most of that technology is incremental in improvement, not you know revolutionary. And so that's never going to do it. But so I thought, well, what is? It's the human beings, it's the people that work here, it's how you're treated. It's our systems and processes as we work with internal workflows and then especially with our patients, any kind of interactions that we had, that was our competitive advantage. And so we took what money we had, we tried to hire the best people we could, we tried to treat them transparently and fairly. We didn't pay bonuses out to the big executives like I was the CFO, no bonuses for me what's the point of that, right? The people that make it happen are the nurses at the front line and the cath techs and all those frontline people, the receptionists, 
that's the experience that our customer has. And our customer reputation is what was going to distinguish us in a marketplace, just from a business perspective. So it's really, it's really has to be, and it can only be all about people. And so as a business, you know, if you want to distinguish yourself, if you want to be more successful, you will strive to understand people better than anybody else. And not like a machine where I'm going to manipulate you to do this and give you a bonus to do that and, you know, fit you into this cog and bolt a jetpack on you to make you more efficient or whatever. And not that there's not a place for technology and all that. I'm not like a Luddite or something. It's really about what is my focus? Right. And so a focus on people. So then I think one of the first things I recommend to companies is do you have values? Do you actually live your values or is it just for the, you know, the annual report? My first recommendation is to have values that are meaningful to you as a business and then make those a big deal and make those the center place of your culture as these are the boundaries that we set around pursuing our business objectives. And then something I've never known any company to do, but I'm recommending they do and that I would love to help them to do, is to help all of your employees get a clear, explicit sense of their own values. Because you, Roy, and I, David, if we only have a vague sense of our values, they don't do us a lot of good. But the research tells us if we make them explicit, so in, in my definition, that means I've identified my top five core values. I've ranked them. I've described what they mean to me, and I've described why my life is better off or how my life works better because of me living that value. To me, that's explicit, and that is going to help guide my life. And if we want to overcome this metaphor, this industrial metaphor, which we don't even think about, most of us, right? We have to start looking at ourselves as human beings and how do we operate better? How do we function better? If you will, how do we become the captain of our own life? So we start with our values. And then since we're working, hopefully now, you're self-employed, right? So you, your company values and your personal values could be exactly the same. Hallelujah. No two agendas, right? No, no creating a roadmap. That's really simple. Most people have to work for somebody else. So if the company makes their values explicit and they say, we live by these, these are important to us, and you know your own values, then you can create a roadmap as an individual human being working for somebody, right? We've ceded a little bit of authority to them purposefully, but then we can figure out how we can connect. And the data tells us that, what was it, 70% or something like that of all employees are disengaged. Disengaged employees are less productive, they're less happy, you know, they're not as good with customers, they don't solve problems as well, things that businesses want us to do. Creating alignment between personal and company values, that is going to unleash engagement because it's thoughtful, right? We are thinking about our lives and we're thinking about our businesses and we're recognizing that human beings are, are the only thing that differentiates us. And we're focusing on creating these connections as human beings who have come together to accomplish some business purpose. And it may be making computer monitors. It may be growing cherries. It may be, you know, making headphones or whatever else it is. It doesn't make any difference. It may be operating a government. 
It may be a regulatory agency, or it could be any of these things because it's all the same. It's all about functioning as human beings working towards some ends that we share with somebody else. In a nonprofit, right? You might belong to Audubon Society, right? Or, you know, the, what's it called? The Arbor Five, shoot. Arbor Foundation, the ones who plant trees, right? So there's no money. It's all about coming together to help plant trees because it makes the world a better place, right? So people whose values they've identified are consistent with the values of that organization come together and they accomplish purposes. And that's just what any business is or organization. And if we start to change this metaphor with enough people, all of a sudden lives and businesses are more aligned. They're more balanced. They're more cognizant of all the various stakeholders and effects that they have. And they try to improve, right? So they have less negative effect and more positive effect. And I'm getting into, you know, nirvana here or whatever word that you want to describe this beautiful society. But unless just, we start just, changing just, the metaphor, just, we'll just, never get there. Just on that, because you said a lot of the times, uh, like the employees are disengaged. And that's because what I have witnessed in kind of my career, one with a big pharmaceutical company and another with a big franchise. They had like you call it their mission statement, their values. And they were totally different, like employees can see that they have these beautiful things on the board. They're saying, oh, we're doing this thing. We're doing that. We're planting these days. We're doing that. But they're doing terrible things in between. And people know that. And so they have to be aligned what you're saying. And unfortunately, a lot of them, they, you know, they're promoting all the beautiful things that people want to hear, but they're not actually actually doing it. And, you know, you, you look at a person, what they're actually doing. It doesn't matter what type of a salesman he is. If he's coming along and he's saying X, Y and Z to you, but he does why, you know, he, it could be somebody talking about parenting. And you see how they are as a parent or that they don't, you know, they don't even spend time with their child, whatever it is. And that's like yeah. the way the companies are kind of up a lot, unfortunately. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I, last year, I spent about six months. I went to work for a big box store. And I won't say what the name is of a big box store, but it was a big company in the United States with home improvement. And, you know, hundreds of thousands of employees. And I think they're all over the world now, literally. And I think overall, it's a pretty well-run company. But I made the same observation and I called out. So I was a frontline. I was making $15 an hour, you know, employee. And, and I would go to my supervisor once I figured out I had a supervisor. <laughs> and, and I would say, you know, you guys have asked us to do this. That seems to be inconsistent with our values and with our policies, in fact. And he said, yeah, I brought that up years ago and, and I didn't get anywhere. So just, you know, live with it, basically. <laughs> and, and it wasn't the only instance of that. And a lot of employees, you know, when you're, I've been a CFO or a CEO for a, a lot of years, for almost 30 years, probably. And I hadn't worked on the front lines for a long, long time, you know, as a receptionist or, you know, the medical assistant, you know, who drives your blood and takes your blood pressure or whatever. And I really wanted to reconnect with that. You know, what's life like when you're trying to live on something that frankly is you can't live on it. I mean, you can't support a family on that kind of wage. It's literally impossible. But I, and I, so I, you know, I'd sit in the break room. I'm just another employee 
you know, and what are we talking about? What are people talking about? You know, what do they gripe about? What do they recognize? And I really wanted to feel that since I was writing my book for frontline employees, because candidly, for the world to change, for us to change, for society, for business to change, we're going to have to, we have to, each of us, I believe, step up and hold our employers, hold our communities to a more accountable standard. I don't think it'll happen any other way. I don't think there's enough regulation possible <laughs> to make it happen. Because what we know is when you create a regulation, the business then says, okay, here's this impedance to our business objective, right? I have to put a filter on my smokestack so I don't put out as much pollution. Well, that costs me money. So how do I overcome that, right? Well, they hire lobbyists and they hire scientists and they hire business people and others to figure out how they can become an exception to that law, <laughs> to that rule, and or how they can work around it or how they can base some other unfortunate soul to bear the brunt of it so that they don't have to. You know, I mean, that's just how, that's how it works. And so we need to have a more profound level of accountability. But we as human beings, and this is what the evidence tells us, the vast majority of us, we don't hold ourselves accountable. <laughs> like you mentioned, you know, I'd say my family is really important to me. It's one of my five core values, for example. But I don't spend any time with my kids because I work 60 hours a week and I move all the time to chase that big bonus that my company has held out, you know, has this incredible amount of motivation, but just completely inconsistent with my values because I've never made them explicit because I've not focused on the second principle, which is self-awareness and feedback. I've not focused on the third principle, which is learning right? The only difference between success and failure is whether you've learned from what has happened. And I really believe that very strongly. And business, frankly, has shown that to be true. But anyways, learning and your intent. These four of the first four of the 10 principles, they all build on each other. And yet most of us have never done it. You're right. We don't really hold ourselves accountable. I, I, I propose this pattern in the book. I say, live intentionally in the morning, and then be accountable in the evening. So like every day I start my day by being intentional about what I want to do, and more important about who I want to become. You know, as the person that is living my values, my own personal core values, not my employer's values, not my friend's values, not my parents' values, not the government's values, right? My own personal core values. And then at the end of the day, I said, how did I do? Right? It's really a simple process. And it doesn't require anything fancy. It, it can be helped by journaling, for example, or a practice of some kind of mindfulness. But it's a really simple pattern. Anybody can do it. You could do it. Anybody listening could do this. And until we do that, and we live our lives with a sense of integrity, how can we expect a collection of people like us to do anything different. And I always, I mean, I totally plan. I know exactly what I want. I know the character that I want to be. I, I've everything kind of is is mapped out how I do it. But if like when I look at some people on 
when they're buying a car, the amount of work they go into buying a car, if they're going on holidays, they can spend some people a month planning out exactly where they're going and everything. And you ask them, how are you planning your life? And it just goes over their head. <laughs> you plan your life better than you plan a holiday and buying a car. And that way you, you will achieve, you know, like, whether, like we mentioned, the parenting, like, you know, you, you determine how you want to be the best parent that you can be. You know, and you know, you learn from your mistakes. Like you reflect at the end of the day, what did I do wrong? You know, like if you've got an anger issue, start reading books on anger, how to control anger. If you just, you know, just constantly be conscious of who you are and be a better person. And by doing that, you're putting the ripple. So not only your children see it, but those that's around you. And I, to I totally agree with what you're saying about the, the companies and like, I, I see some amazing people that are working in companies and they're all miserable, to be honest with you. They're all miserable because of a certain level that it goes up and it's just, it's like the nasty person gets the promotion, not the person that cares for people. And right. I, I think with the craziness that has happened in the last two years, people have realized they don't have to be in that kind of environment because, I mean, I know that in when I was working for a construction company in Ireland, you know, I was a regional manager. Like a lot of the times, the engineers and all that, they're expected to do 60 hours. You don't get paid by the hour. You get a salary. And that goes on all over the world. That needs to stop. And I think people are realizing that as well. Because, you know, they can't really push that when you're at home. Plus, you're not doing the two and three hours of traveling. And people, there, there's a lot of people walking away from the jobs now. Or else they're saying, I want to be working from home. Or I want to do four days a week. Because now they've with the craziness that has been, and I even convinced this orchestrated what happened in the last two years, but it's it's got to it's gone against them because there's so many people have woken up to what actually makes them happy. Right. Well, and I exactly right. I mean, and candidly, until we step up to the plate as individuals and insist that a <laughs> we live our life more intention more integrity right that we plan what we want to do not just about buying a car i love your your story about it's vacation and buying a car right we put all the research and thought into it we plan it out we collaborate right what's the best vacation what does your spouse want to do what do you want to do i mean it's a beautiful example and yet what are your own core most important values that you guide the rest of your entire life by uh, 80% of people don't know. I, I would say, I, I would say it's higher to be honest with you. <laughs> well, there you go. It very well could be. And so what I encourage people to do, and since I wrote my book for frontline, you know, this is the bulk of employees. They still work on the front lines. They make the least money and they have the least power. But the way we exert our power is to have first to be the captain of our own life right? We figure out how to set those four first foundations. Then we figure out how to make plans, not just for vacation. But it's a good example, because if you've planned for vacation, but you don't really think that you're able to plan for other parts of life, use that experience of, yeah, we planned this great vacation, and it was wonderful. It doesn't mean it was fancy that you went to some, you know, foreign exotic land or something and maybe it was but it doesn't have to be you planned a great vacation i know when i was in france right 
it was always a month at the beach, it seemed like. <laughs> in August, I was in a mountain town and, and it was a ghost town <laughs> because they were all out at the beach. But, you know, they planned this wonderful vacation and what they wanted to do and where they wanted to go, what they wanted to see, kind of what they wanted, you know, at the end of it. And they've done a great job. So if you've done that, know that you are capable of planning. You just have to broaden that lens to say, I can plan more than just a vacation, right? I can plan a career. I can plan what my values are. I can plan how I live them. I can plan the impact that I want to make on the person I want to become, right? These are all things that you can do. And then you have to learn how to actually carry them out, right? The get or done part. Now, fortunately, that's the best thing. That's what we focus on. Now, 80% of the stuff out there is how to do something. If you go out to YouTube, I don't care where you are in the world or what you want to do, you're going to find 100 people or 1,000 people who can tell you a better way to do it. So the how is not that tough anymore, right? There's no excuses to not figure out how. But, you know, to be planful, that takes a little more effort, how, and then the balancing side of that, because that's mostly about getting stuff done, the balance to that, because we want to have our lives be balanced. We don't want to get to a point in our life or our, our age or our career or our family where we go, oh my gosh, I have been so out of balance for so long that I've ignored these things that really are fundamental to my sense of purpose, my sense of meaning in life, my, my connectedness to other people. And you, you just don't want to get there, right? You want to address this early on. And if early on means like me, I'm 62. If it means that I'm just figuring this out now, then figure it out now. And, you know, move forward tomorrow with a slightly different, slightly better person, right? So it doesn't matter when you start. If you're 18 and you're listening to this, good for you. Man, you've got your whole life, adult life in front of you. So you can do anything, literally. So the balancing things, the balancing skills are about self-kindness. Self-kindness is this idea that when I screw up, I don't beat myself up. I mean, that's the, that's the, ba the basic thing. If you have a friend, Roy, somebody who's a good friend of yours and they screw up, you pick up the phone and say, you're a stupid idiot. How could you have done that? I can't believe that. What a moron. And that's not what you say, right? You want to be compassionate. You want to help them get over it. You want to help them realize that they can rise above this mistake. You want to help them out. And I, I realize that within that situation, everybody is their own worst critic. So when somebody does make a mistake, they're beating themselves up more than anybody else could ever do. So it's the last thing they need is somebody to actually, you know, go on top of them and kind of push them down further. You lift them up, you put your hand out and you lift them up. You know, exactly. So br exactly. Brush, your, brush yourself off. You know, it, it's done. You know, okay, what did you learn? Move on. That's, the, That's perfect. And so there's a skill we can learn to do that for ourselves. And it's great if our friends help us do it too. You know, that's just positive reinforcement. But there's a skill we can learn because here's what science tells us. Science tells us that when I beat myself up for making a mistake or saying a wrong thing or whatever it is, I actually decrease my capacity to do better the next time, right? I work against my own ability to recover from a mistake. 
And so this is really, how do you help yourself recover from your mistakes more easily, more quickly, more effectively? And then with your friend's help, man, you know, you're unstoppable. The second balancing principle is, how do I say this? To recognize that you're not alone. Back in 2018, when I was fired, I had fired people. I mean, you know, you're a CEO, you fired somebody. I tried to do it compassionately as a human being. And HR said, you can't tell them why. You just tell them that they're fired because you don't want them to come back and sue you because we fired them for a reason that they don't agree with. And I said, look, if I look at them as a human being, how could I possibly do that? They want to know why I fired them. And I have a good reason for firing them or I wouldn't be doing this because I've tried this and this and this and it didn't work. So I need to tell them for their own benefit. And if they ignore me and they don't learn from it, that's on them. But I don't want it to be on me. And so I, I said, this is why you're being fired. And this is the stuff that led up to it. And I don't have any other, I don't see any other course forward. I'm really sorry, you know, but you're out of here. And anyways. No, but so, like, just, just on that, because I, I like, I fired a lot, because I had a lot of companies over the years. I, I'm still friends with a load of people that I fired because, you know, before the firing, I was always giving them a kind of chance. And I sat down with them and I looked at them as best I could. I would always give them a recommendation based on what I saw, what their skill set was. And I would advise them, look, you're more suited to this type of job than this kind of job. And I'm, st I'm still in contact with a lot of people that I fired. They never held it against me because I never treated them like dirt, which I have seen other managers or owners doing they just you know they like cut the ties and they treat people like they're vermin and it's something you should never do exactly and yet it's what human resources tells us we're supposed to do but it's contrary to the way human beings operate right and when we operate when we function that way because we could make that choice we could function in a way that is inconsistent with the way human beings work but if we do, we have to recognize that we will pay a price, right? We will pay a price in people that are discouraged, people that are depressed, people that are unengaged, right? And I mean, people that see the dichotomy, the, you know, the two-facedness of these things, we bear the brunt, we bear the consequence of it because it is inevitable, just like gravity, right? If I take my pencil and I drop it, gravity every time will make it drop. That's not a, as, as a dramatic as a mic drop, but, but it's the same effect, right? I mean, it, it's a natural law, and there are natural laws for human beings. And so we have to treat each other in those ways, right? And so we have to realize, though, that when we're fired, and when I was fired, it became very personal all of a sudden. And in my trying to learn, you know, striving to learn from this, and I did, I had some really good lessons, which I appreciate. I do appreciate. It doesn't make it easy. It wasn't easy, right? It totally has changed my life. But I, I hope eventually, you know, for the better. But I learned that in the United States alone, 50,000 people are fired or laid off every single day. But when you are fired or when you have a breakup or when you have a business failure or you have, you know, any of the things that happen in life, in normal everyday life, right, we feel really alone. 
And that this principle is really about recognizing that you are not alone. There are other people that you can share this with and you can lift each other up. It's this idea of our common humanity. We are really not alone. And then the last principle is, is about, I call it mindlessness. And so I, I say in the book, I say, do you have a mind? Right? And so if I'm talking about being mindless, but you've already told me that you have a mind, you know you do, mindlessness cannot be the fact that I don't have a mind. It has to be something else. I suggest mindlessness is failing to use the most amazing, according to scientists, right? Our brain is the most complicated thing in the universe, more complicated than the sun or the planet or the solar system. Our brain is the most amazing creation in the universe. This is the human brain because it is uniquely capable in the universe. I mean, it's really quite amazing and astounding. And to have the most amazing thing in the universe and to not use it, that is mindlessness. And so the alternative is to be mindful. And my hope in approaching it this way is that especially, and then again, I'm not sure about the rest of the world, but in the Western, like in the United States and Canada, there's a lot of people who, when I say we need to be mindful, they tune out. They say, I don't wear yoga pants. I don't eat yogurt. I don't even like granola. Uh, you know, I am not, you know, mindfulness. You want me to meditate for two hours every day? And they have, you know, burn incense. And they have all this kind of baggage that goes along with the word, which is silly, of course. Guys, you could wear yoga pants if you want, but you don't have to. Being mindful is a choice that I have this amazing thing and I am going to use it. And that's all it is, right? And so mindfulness at its core is saying I'm going to use my brain without judgment. Judgment creates emotion. And emotion creates hormones. And Again, the psychologists, they talk about operating in what they call system one or system two. We spend much of our life in system one, which is the knee-jerk first reaction, right? Somebody says something you don't like, and you blurt out the first thing that comes to your mind, because without even thinking about it, you'd have this emotional reaction to it. And so you put your foot squarely in your mouth, and that's just you know the way most of us operate on a day-to-day -day basis. Being mindful is saying, you know, that's there and it's there for a reason. It works out of my amygdala, which is fight, flight, freeze, right? This is my fear. This is my et cetera, et cetera, which isn't bad, right? I'm just saying we need to control it. And mindfulness says, I recognize this first impression that I have. I recognize I'm having this emotional reaction to it. And this can happen in an instant. And then as a great habit, I don't say anything <laughs> at first. And you give yourself a second. And I give some suggestions in the book, some simple things we can do that this is a big problem for us. Maybe we fly off the handle or maybe we you know, jump into this emotional tirade or whatever it is, but how we can remain in a mindful state, which is non-judgmental. But 
we've got this balance then of values, of getting things done and learning, and of being coming this person who's in charge of their life. We're in charge of our emotions. We're in charge of our work life. We're in charge of our family life. We're in charge of our physical life, how we take care of ourselves or how we don't, right? We, through a process of adopting these 10 principles, we're the captain. And then we're in a position to make the world a better place. Because as they say, you cannot get peanut butter out of a jar and put it on a piece of toast without getting some on yourself. And you cannot become this person, this captain of your own life who's living intentionally, consistent with your values, without having an impact on the people around you, be it your family, your coworkers, your social clubs, your causes, your work. And only when enough of us do this and rise up to this level of, of balance and control of leadership, if you will, of our own lives, will we be able to hold our, our companies accountable? And when you and your coworkers are doing this, and this is why I wrote the book to the front lines, because if the frontline people get together and say, this is important, this is what we need to do, not that I'm just like you, but because I understand myself better, I'm aware and I'm intentional, and I am becoming this person through all these other principles, and you're doing the same, we can actually relate to each other. We can get along together. We don't have to judge each other. We recognize that we're unique and we honor that, but we also aren't gonna give up on our values, right? So that we figure out in a transparent way how we're gonna accomplish things that we wanna to do together, living within those frameworks. And then all the monkey business starts to fade away. And it's not okay anymore that we have a values statement as a group of people that's inconsistent with what we're actually living. Right? It's just not acceptable anymore. It's not okay. It would be completely contrary to what we are becoming. And I think until we do this, we're, we're doomed <laughs> to have, you know, the pattern, you know, the system that is set up to continue to produce the kind of results that we see. And so that's my way to try to make the world a little better place, one person at a time. And I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm actually seeing it and I'm seeing there's more and more people that are becoming mindful and just on your book, because uh, I know we've gone well past the hour and a half, like I've, I've looked at the reviews, you've got some fantastic reviews, so I'd encourage people to check it out. So you, you might let people know how can they get in contact with you, where they can find you? Sure. And the, the easiest and best way is just go to my website www.davidredwards.com that's the easiest way okay perfect and i'll make sure that i put the link both in the audio and in the video i totally enjoyed our conversation david thank you roy and i i'm sorry i get all excited about this stuff but <laughs> i so appreciate and i've enjoyed working with you so that's all for the awakening podcast you'll find all our episodes on awakeningpodcast.org as mentioned we're on bitchute as awakening podcast be sure to give us a thumbs up five star rating review and subscribe until next week take care